Episode 2, Soundings, 1609. After being fired by the English, Englishman Henry Hudson was hired by the Dutch East India Company to seek out the coveted Northern Passage, the Northeast Passage to be precise. This yet undiscovered sea route over the top of the globe, which it was believed would reduce a merchant's round-trip voyage to Asia by over a year. And while there is a myriad of questions swirling around Hudson's nebulous legacy, one of the foremost remains. So why was he working for the Dutch? Well, Mavrao, that might have something to do with some of the entries in his official journal that he submitted to the Muscovy directors after that 1608 voyage. So he, he goes five months at sea, mm. comes back, and two weeks later, he's back at the Muscovy company offices saying, well, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't find the, the Northern Passage this time either, but could you send me out a third time? I'm ready to go. I think I can find it. But he did include in his report to them from this second voyage um, a mermaid sighting. And it, it wasn't just, hey, we think we saw a mermaid. He put it in his official journal. Wow. Which is very, you got to wonder, why would he do that? This is what he wrote. 15th yeah. of June, 1608. This morning, one of our company looking overboard saw a mermaid. And calling up, up some of the company, company to see her. One more came up. And by that time, she was come close to the ship's side, looking earnestly on the men. A little after, a sea came and overturned her. From the navel upward, her back and breast were like a woman's, as they say, that saw her. Her body as big as one of us, her skin very white and long hair hanging down behind of colour black. In her going down, they saw her tail, which was like the tail of a porpoise. And speckled like a mackerel. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> That's specific. That's right? very specific. But it's not like I, I, I fell mean, asleep and think I saw a ghost. It's like this is exactly what we and the whole ship saw. I right? mean, was he hallucinating? <laughs> well, hallucinating, uh, they certainly could have been. But then they could also have simply been doing all they could to not pass out from the debilitating cold up there. And doubtlessly, they were dreadfully under-equipped in their 1608 outerwear. I mean, even today, <laughs> we'd be hard-pressed to find effective clothing to protect against this kind of cold. And that doesn't even begin to address the fear that these guys would have been dealing with. This was the Arctic Circle, after all. In fact, this particular event, the mermaid sighting, was recorded in the aforementioned Barents Sea, which was named for the aforementioned Dutch explorer, Willem Barents, whose charts and data Hudson was so closely studying on this very voyage. After all, Willem Barents had done a bit of this himself. In fact, he was so committed to the effort that he paid with his life on this very sea, searching for this very same northern passage just 11 years earlier. And as we're going to come to learn, um, having a waterway named after you often comes at a price that most people <laughs> would not be willing to pay. For instance, in order to attain the honor of having the Barent Sea named after him, Willem Barents had to depart this life from upon that very body of water. 
1597. And the Davis Strait, named for another explorer, friend, and associate of Hudson's, John Davis, who did not actually go down in that body of water, but met his own dubious fate on the other side of the planet, where he was hacked and slashed to death by Asian pirates in 1605. So yeah, if you were an explorer in and around the 17th century and you happen to have a waterway named after you, ooh, watch out. Because a lot of times that means that things didn't really end well. And we're going to see a little more of that as we move down the line. And there's something else still to consider when we're really trying to wrap our hands around what was going through the minds of these sailors back in the 17th century. I mean, let's put the time frame into context. This is 400 years ago. They are barely a century out of the Middle Ages. (laughs) It's a long time ago. And things were just different. And there was so much that people just didn't know about the world, about human relations, and about themselves. These concepts uh, about waterways that may exist over the top of the planet, etc., they were really pretty radical. And the people propagating these theories were really out on the fringe somewhat. In fact, just to even pinpoint this era a little bit more, it wouldn't be for another 25 years that Galileo would be tried and convicted of heresy for having the audacity to suggest, (laughs) contrary to the Pope's beliefs, that the earth actually revolved around the sun and not the other way around. (laughs) I mean, this is the world that these guys lived in. And no, they were not running into any traffic up in the Arctic Circle. No waypoints either. There was absolutely nothing and no one up there in the Arctic Circle in 1608. Nor was there anyone to radio to... (laughs) or any radios with which to do it. This was a desolation that we today really, I think, have a hard time wrapping our hands around. Yes, so being up there in 1608, I I can't even imagine the strange thoughts that may have been vibrating through these intrepid seamen's minds. Yes, maybe even further distorted by some odd awareness of being so far out on the fringe, both literally and figuratively. Or, maybe they really did see a mermaid. They probably had far too much to drink. They probably had those (laughs) ship's biscuits that had gone really moldy. Mm. Um, So what do you think, (laughs) Yap? Moldy biscuits? Mermaid subterfuge? Desolation-induced mirages? Or actual mermaids? So, once you see a creature with the torso of a woman, but the tail of a fish, 
then obviously this must be a mermaid. They were not losing their mind. They were just seeing things they'd never seen before. Right. You see, I, I feel that you're very anti this mermaid. Valley maps are replete with sea monsters. But, I mean, they believed in witches at the time. They must have believed in mermaids. Because in some of the maps that had been published, all kinds of creatures were drawn to indicate that here there are dragons. People saw ghosts. This is unknown territory. You may find anything. Okay. So, sounds like he did believe it. Oh, he believed it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't make him crazy. Okay. Was it a real mermaid? What do you think? Was it, was it a real <laughs> mermaid? Do we think mermaids existed? <laughs> well, whatever it was, it was enough for the English to show Hudson the door and allow the Dutch to snatch him up. The Dutch India Company was interested in hiring Hudson because they, well, they already had a monopoly on Dutch shipping and trade to Asia around the Cape of Good Hope. Now, Cape of Good Hope, for anybody who doesn't know, that's the bottom of Africa. It is, yeah. This was the established route to get to Asia at that time. Yeah, these were long voyages, yes. Now, yeah, the Dutch East India Company is often referred to by its Dutch acronym, VOC. VOC stands for Verenigde Oost-Indische Compagnie. It had been founded in 1602 and had been doing business in the East Indies. It had received a monopoly for 21 years, so there were some connections, some negotiations going on. And at that point in time, the VOC turned him down. But the French were interested in hiring him. Mm -hmm. And that's when the Dutch thought, hey, we'd better uh, hire this man anyway, just to make sure that the French don't. Right. It was a bidding war. Of, of sorts. Of sorts. And the timing there is no coincidence. Hudson left early in April 1609 from Amsterdam. And a few days later, the 12 years truce started with Spain. So the Dutch Republic was at war with Spain before. And any Dutch ships could be taken by Spanish or Portuguese ships. But once there was a truce, any competitors could try and find another route, apply for a government charter. So this was a business boom. This is almost like after World War II, where laws changed, the trade opportunities opened up. Hey, we're going to go search for this, this northern passage. Absolutely. And the Dutch were, the Dutch really had the hand up in sea navigation and international exploration in this era, correct? Let's say the 17th century. Yes. And the Dutch were very proactive. They were, but that was had already started in the 1590s mm -hmm. when they were cut off from the trade in Asian products in Spain. They wanted to find out the route to Asia for themselves. So they were trying the northern route um, in 1595 and through some kind of, of espionage, they managed to get hold of information on the route via the Cape of Good Hope. So that that was all in the game, as it were. Mm -hmm. And um, the war was taken overseas, which was one of the points of not just the East India Company, but also later on the Dutch West India Company. And now being in this position of worldwide leader in seafaring prowess, there was even a strange pride attached specifically to this Northern Passage endeavor. Papal big shots like the Spanish and the Portuguese simply weren't doing it. So yes, there was a certain proprietary nature to it, this search for this shortcut to Asia over the top of the globe. And while the French had been toying with jumping in a little bit, this had really developed by now into a pronounced and exclusive contest between the English and the Dutch. Now hold that thought. 
because we'll be right back. So Indira, he was working for the Dutch ostensibly because the English fired him. But it was almost as if the Dutch were literally waiting in the wings. It was almost as if they knew. And they, they snatched him right up. He already had all this, the experience of these two voyages already. So this was a very experienced explorer. But he knew very well that if he were the one to find this, that he would receive the eternal fame that had befallen Columbus. Wow. And that is probably why he took up contact with the Dutch. And when that leaked out, why the French contacted him. Also keep in mind that if you have a ship available, which the Dutch did with the Halve Maan, then hiring a crew, it would be a relatively small expense for them. And actually, it was an extremely small expense. The contract amount they gave Hudson was 800 guilders. Yes. 800 guilders in 1609, which my financial uh, associates assure me is somewhere between 50 and 80,000 U.S. dollars today. Not bad, though, uh, but for a large international company as a significant investment towards uh, world domination, yeah, that could be a little stingy, I guess. And if they sank, he got a little bit more? The usual thing was for some kind of reimbursement for the loss uh, to the widow and any other uh, relatives. I think it was 200 guilders. How big were these boats? Not that big. The Halfaman, the Half Moon, was six, about 65 feet long, which is not oh, that long. I mean, it's nothing. just a little bit longer than the city buses today. Wow. Do you ever travel to Asia yourself? Because I'm half Indian, I go to, I've been to India a lot. So how long does that take you? Oh, I'm going to make this up now. 18 hours, something yeah. like that? That's a long trip. It's really long. Well, Hudson, in his day, it was a one-year trip. Wow. God. And that was one way. If you cut down on that, that's that's really good for business. Yeah. And if you controlled that route, you you really were looking at some serious uh, profit going forward. So he, he does get hired by the Dutch after being fired by the English. They said to him, here's your instructions. Leave Amsterdam, clear Tessel, turn right, and sail straight north into the Arctic about 3,000 miles or so. And, and if you're not dead of hypothermia and you're not crushed by pack ice, just sort of look around for whatever landmass might be up there because hmm. no human had ever been there yet. And then just try to sort of follow that with your eyes southward over the other side of the earth about another 3,000 miles or so. Until, and then just see if you can see China. Wow. Okay. Then if and when you actually do make it there alive, grab as many silks, spices, bags of tea, pieces of porcelain as you can, and then just come right back the same way you went. And that should all take about six months. God. What must it have taken to be, they're they're suicidal missions, aren't they? It's, It's extraordinary. And yet these were no daredevils. Throughout the journals, it's obvious how aware they were of their vulnerability on a small ship a long way from any help. So they are very, very careful, both in sailing and navigating, as well as in their dealings with anyone they encounter. So the Dutch outfit him with the ship and they also outfit him with a crew. That's right. Um, what kind of crew? So they were probably hired in Amsterdam. And now sailors are usually not the um, 
most pious men around, so their behavior would be a little rough. Yes, <laughs> their behavior was a little rough. In fact, the name Half Moon is inspired by a medallion worn by an earlier group of fighting seamen known as Sea Beggars, hard-edged privateers largely credited with gaining Dutch independence from Spain a generation earlier. Other than the three English-speaking crew members that Hudson already knew and was permitted to bring on this voyage, the other twelve, all assigned to him by the VOC, were no doubt most or all direct descendants of this sea beggar lot, with a thoroughly uncalibrated moral compass and a seemingly insatiable appetite for violence. Oh yeah, they also didn't speak any English. And no, Hudson didn't speak any Dutch. So yeah, one thing that we didn't really put our finger on, if his instructions from the VOC were to seek the Northeast Passage over Novaya Zemlya, going over the north of Russia, and find his way to Asia, how does he end up sailing to Manhattan <laughs> and up the Hudson River 3,000 miles plus off course? Well, in some ways, um, Henry Hudson was the departmental manager of the research and development project, and he went AWOL. Okay, so he went AWOL, but still not mentally unstable. I don't think you can make trips like these while being mentally unstable. So I don't think he was unstable. He was driven, driven by glory. So him going west, it was as much an issue of him negotiating with his crew as it was him being insubordinate to his employer. Yes. And in those negotiations, the character and fighting spirit of this half-moon crew would have been taken into consideration by Hudson. And in fact, that spirit would not be quelled, but encouraged. As the highest ranking of the three English crewmen under Hudson, his ancient man of the sea, Robert Jewett, would be the one to pen the official journal of this voyage. And in Jewett's forebodingly fatalistic style, the cynical old sailor makes abundantly clear throughout his journal his deep suspicions of others, be they rival Europeans in a passing ship or similarly suspicious Algonquins in a canoe. We durst not trust them, he writes, over and over. So, June 25th, 1609, the half moon is going west to search for the Northwest Passage. And they see a ship going east. They chase it, not, not for 10 minutes, but for six hours. That's in Jewett's journal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what was their intention there? If, once you identify a ship, it can be either friend or foe. And if it's, if it's a foe, which has a good cargo, then you can take it as a prize. That was the usual thing if you have letters of mark. And that was fair game. You see a ship, you want to plunder it, that's what you do. If it is an enemy. Now, Indira, check this out. Among the four English crew members was Hudson himself, Jewett, a younger officer by the name of John Coleman, who was also the only translator aboard, and a little 12-year-old boy named John Hudson. God, and so why did he take his son? I don't know, but, but here's the thing. He didn't just take him on this one, on the Halfaman. He took him on all four. So he took him in 1607, when he was 10. He took him in 1608. He took him in 1609, when he found Manhattan. And he took him in 1610. So John Hudson <laughs> had been on no less than four 
intercontinental voyages of discovery before he was a teenager. Children from six onwards were expected to help out their parents. Six? Yes. What did his wife say about <laughs> On, I mean, look, the half moon was eight months plus at sea. Yeah. That's okay? That's fine. Mrs. Hudson? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you don't teach your children how to, if you don't learn them a trade, then what are they going to do for life? And I guess Henry Hudson was an optimist, so he never felt that he was putting his child's life at risk. He always felt like he was coming back. And with good reason. If the intel from Hudson's four documented voyages tell us anything about him, it is that he had an uncanny knack for keeping his crews alive and getting them back home eventually. <laughs> as long as he was still around to do it. Now hold that thought because we'll be right back. So let's just make a wild assumption that Henry Hudson could be recreated today. The half moon is sitting there. He has all the same navigational technology as he had in 1609. Would you get on that voyage? If it's an experienced skipper, yes, I would. Well, if it was Henry Hudson. Which <laughs> 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 is slightly different. Wait. wait Actually, wait, but, I, would, I would probably... Um, ask Henry if we couldn't take the southern route instead, as that is uh, both warmer and easier because we've got better currents. This was a very different time. And Manhattan was a very different place. So different that if we saw it and smelled it and heard this island for ourselves, we would hardly believe it. Now, there's a place on the northwest corner of Manhattan Island that many, many people have never heard of, let alone visited, where the unspoiled natural beauty of this land is nothing short of breathtaking. Because the land that I'm referring to remains as proper, unblemished, old-growth forest to this day where towering oaks and spruces shade wild turkeys and cottontail rabbits, where blue jays and cardinals flutter about as red-tailed hawks soar high above, and as we move through these hundreds of forested acres westward past the ancient Indian caves of the Rekawawank natives, we eventually come to a cliff 200 feet above the majestic Hudson River. And it is from this perch that we can turn back time by centuries to what this place used to be. Because this particular forested wonderland that we now call Inwood Hill Park looks and feels and sounds and smells exactly like this island did when Henry Hudson came sailing up the river that would come to eternally bear his name. In 1609, you can still stand up on that hill and you can look out on that river and you don't see buildings. You can look at a certain section of that river and it, it looks exactly like it did when Henry Hudson came sailing up it in 1609. You do see what it must have been like to arrive there, what that river is like. It feels mammoth and 
powerful. It makes you feel good to be somewhere that is ancient. It's almost enough to bring you back to September 6th, 1609. A day that was so clear that you don't see that many ships out there. Once you climb a hill, you can see just about anything that's out there. Hudson sends junior officer and ship's translator, John Coleman, with four of the Dutch crewmen in the shallop, a large rowboat, out past the Narrows on a sounding mission. They had probably, very likely actually, already been spotted by the Native Americans on the shore. They didn't know exactly what the situation was in terms of currents and all of that. Mm -hmm. So it would be relatively easy for a sloop to go out there and not be able to find its way back to the main ship. It's possible that no European had come this way since Gomez in... 1526. They probably ha had never seen anything like this in 1609. Not, not in person. But hadn't they already seen the French? Well, uh, Verrazano was here 85 years prior. So there's probably nobody was alive that remembers uh, yeah. seeing them. And the Plymouth Bay Colony up by Cape Cod that was still over a decade away at this point. So a widely believed theory is that most of these natives had never seen a European. But on their way back to the main ship, Coleman and his four men would be set upon by two dozen native aggressors. Something must have happened for them to be provoked, or they must, they may have known something about iron materials or other trade goods that were on board and decided that this was their chance to take it. So the natives came to plunder Coleman's boat. That may very well have happened. And in the skirmish that erupted, the marauding Algonquins would unleash a fierce storm of stone point arrows, answered by a devastating retaliation of musket fire. And amidst the Algonquins' hasty retreat, the four gruff Dutchmen set their long guns down on their knees and stared at their mission leader Coleman, now compromised, with one of those arrows lodged in his throat. And suddenly, Henry Hudson, his ancient man of the sea, Robert Jewett, and his 12-year-old son found themselves staring at a dozen agitated, violent Dutch seamen with whom they couldn't communicate a single word over 3,000 miles from home. God. And so, <laughs> what is the verdict, Meneer? Statue or no statue for Hudson? Well, of course, Hudson deserves some credits. I am not particularly in favor of erecting a new statue for just about anybody, but it doesn't mean that, in my view, any of the statues of people in the past, unless they are particularly odious, need to be removed. Hudson's, well, doesn't really matter, does it? <laughs> I think it does. I went there with my 12-year-old just the other day, and we thought it was pretty awesome. And he's been asking all about Henry Hudson ever since. So I'd like to keep it there. It's nice. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. So we'll keep that. I, yeah. <laughs> I, there's, no much, there's no point in removing it. But I would say the same about Stuyvesant. Um, but that's a different story. And actually, it's much more controversial nowadays than Hudson is. And that is another episode down the line as well. Dr. Yap Jacobs is affiliated with the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He has also taught at the University of Leiden, Harvard University, UPenn, and Cornell University. 
His remarkable book, The Colony of New Netherland by Cornell University Press, is available at most major booksellers. Miss Indira Varma can be seen on the series This Way Up on Hulu, as well as in the upcoming series Obi-Wan Kenobi from Disney. Island is an original production researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Yakups, executive producer Alec Baldwin for Cavalry Media and iHeart. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time. growing island audience. Vedant, thank you. You guys are cool. We want to let you know about our companion podcast, Island Voices, because there are so many cool, incredible people here with us today. We don't want to just have to talk about people who were here 400 years ago. Island Voices is available both on YouTube and wherever you listen to Island. The YouTube channel is Island Voices Podcast. Island Voices Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to Island. Climb aboard. History is cool.